1: The Economist.
2: When I was at university, I spent time campaigning for the repatriation of a looted colonial artifact. It was a bronze cockerel, stolen from the ancient kingdom of Benin, now located in modern day Nigeria. This was all well before the peak of the Black Lives Matter movement when people were still uncomfortable talking about the legacies of racist injustices like colonialism and slavery. The argument, to me anyway, was simple. In the Benin Expedition of 1897, a punitive retaliation against the Bini people who were trying to protect themselves from being colonised, British soldiers burnt the entire city to the ground and stole much of the artefacts left in the rubble. Part of this plunder was this bronze cockerel. It's about the size of an actual cockerel, heavy, quite lifelike, with a perfectly layered tail and intricate engravings. It was later gifted to my college at Cambridge University by a descendant of one of the soldiers. The people of Benin have been calling for their artefacts back for decades. And so my thinking was, we should give back what was taken. Six years later, it was – in Britain's first institutional repatriation of its kind. And those kinds of repatriations have become more common since. Returning things that are tangible and traceable is complex enough, but what about the crimes committed hundreds of years ago, by people and against people who are no longer alive to tell the tale? Is it possible to atone for them? My name is Ore Ogumbi, and this is The Weekend Intelligence, a new podcast from The Economist that takes you deeper into the stories that matter. In this episode, how do you put a price on the loss of freedom? The question of how you begin to atone for the enslavement of 12.5 million Africans is a discussion that's currently being had by campaign groups, parliaments, and courts across the world. It's called reparations.
3: I believe that there is a moral obligation to apologise on behalf of the ancestors who are not around now, so that we in the Caribbean as descendants can then begin a conversation about repair, because reparation is about repairing the harm.
2: Reparations are a means of making amends and redressing an injustice like slavery. After years of activism, there's been an increasing demand for compensation from Western countries to the people living under the shadow of the slave trade's legacy. Some estimate the debt owed in these reparations to be in the tens of trillions of dollars. Some advocate for other kinds of compensation that aren't explicitly monetary. Others, like Rishi Sunak, the British Prime Minister, don't want to unravel what they foresee is a never-ending thread. Trying
4: to unpick our history is not the right way forward, and it's not something that we will focus our energies on.
2: But there are some who are confronting their uncomfortable legacy. Three years ago, a British family discovered that they were descendants of a prominent 19th century slave owner a man who made his considerable fortune off the back of 2,500 enslaved African people that he owned on Jamaica and Demerara, now part of Guyana. For 1843 magazine, the economists' home for narrative journalism and the human stories behind the headlines, economist writer Charlie McCann followed the family to Guyana to face their history head on, and to find out how you atone for the sins of your ancestors?
1: Um, which one is Mister Gladstone? Just checking. Mister Gladstone, would that be you, sir? Thank you.
5: Gladstones and murderers.
6: It's 7.50 p.m. in Guyana, South America, and the Gladstone family has just landed. Their journey was a long one, 12 hours, over 4,000 miles, to a country they've never been to before. And they're greeted by a foreboding scene.
1: We were told that there were a handful of protesters outside the airport, but I did not know what we were actually in for.
6: A security team hustles Xanthi Gladstone and the rest of her family, her parents, brother, cousin and uncle, into air-conned SUVs. A TV camera crew follows them. And standing just a few feet away are protesters, a lot of them.
1: We were met with what we now know as 60 protesters. They were silent, but they were holding signs, the only one of which we could read that said the Gladstones are murderers.
6: The convoy of cars whisks the family away, a police escort accompanying them, sirens wailing, into Georgetown, the capital of Guyana.
1: Felix and I like held onto each other's hands
0: for the whole journey.
6: As they weave through traffic and dodge potholes, Xanthi's father Charlie begins to have doubts about the wisdom of this trip.
7: I did think that I'd really let my family down by bringing them here and that I'd made a major mistake, and they would have the right to never trust anything I said again, because I could see how frightened they were.
6: You might be familiar with the Gladstone name. William Gladstone was Britain's Prime Minister four times in the late 1800s. He died in the same castle his great-great-grandson, Charlie, lives in today. You are probably less familiar with the name Sir John Gladstone. Sir John Gladstone was William's father. Between 1803 and 1838, he built a fortune on the backs of enslaved Africans, on his sugar plantations in Jamaica and what was then the British colony of Demerara. It's a past his families say they were hardly aware of until three years ago. And now it is a past that they, like Britain itself, are beginning to reckon with. The Gladstone family have come to Guyana to apologize for the acts of their ancestor, one of the largest slaveholders in the British West Indies. And I've come with them.
7: We have the marquee
6: there,
7: and we host weddings.
6: The flowers are so nice. Aren't they nice? Yeah. Yeah. I first meet Charlie Gladstone when I travel to his country estate on the northern border of Wales and England,
0: Tara. Hi Tara. She married someone for Charlie. It's yeah. all Charlie's.
2: Yeah, Charlie's <laughs> everywhere. So Tara runs yeah, <laughs> On the
6: summer day that I visit the family's eighteenth century castle, it looks like something out of a storybook. Its turrets are drenched in sun, and dragonflies dart about the meadow surrounding it. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, such a big... On a tour of the estate, Charlie takes me to the castle's most famous room, the Temple of Peace. This was the study of John Gladstone's son, William Gladstone.
7: This is the Temple of Peace, so this is the prime ministerial study, as maintained, as he left it. He um, did all his writing watched over by Disraeli, who was his political nemesis. And when he died, he lay in here.
6: A marble bust of Benjamin Disraeli loomed over us in the study. He and William Gladstone were famous political rivals. Think the 19th century Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk. I love that he was watched over by his nemesis. Yes, I know. It's good, funny. isn't it? During the latter part of the century, the two politicians dominated British political life. There is a reason the family called this room the temple. Charlie was born into a family that revered William Gladstone. The prime minister was a champion of liberalism. He expanded voting rights, pursued free trade, proposed home rule for Ireland, helped make government more meritocratic. For Charlie's father, the past was his profession and calling. He taught history at Eden, where many of Britain's prime ministers have gone to school, and wrote a book about his famous ancestor. Charlie, by his own telling, couldn't be more different from those earlier generations. You can tell just by looking at him. He's blonde, fairly tall, wears large, thick-rimmed glasses and a collection of festival wristbands. He's dressed like an aging hipster. But like his father and great-great-great-grandfather, Charlie is actually a sir. Technically, he is Sir Charles Angus Gladstone of Fask and Balfour, Eighth Baronet, an inherited title. That lineage might give some people airs, but there's nothing pompous about Charlie. Hey,
7: Terry. How are you? you. Heavy. <laughs> Hello. We're coming round in a minute, so see you in a moment. Look at this, you can tell there's a wedding going on. Right, yeah. Today's Amazon. So this is our bit
8: of the house. And... <laughs> Hello. Oh, hey, how are how you? Are you? I'm very well place, how are you? I keep thinking about you. I've been off for four months.
6: I got As we make our way to the estate restaurant, he stops every few minutes to chat with his staff. He likes to be seen as someone in touch with his surroundings.
7: The Beatles passed my parents by. You know, I mean, we, they had no interest in the contemporary worlds. I mean, my father had great interest in people and was a teacher and had great interest in the world around him, but was just fascinated by William I love change and he didn't like I've always liked the new thing. You know, unusually perhaps for a man of my age, I could talk to my girls about, you know, new trainers or you know, whatever. It just interests me. Yeah.
6: Though the Temple of Peace has been trapped in amber. The rest of the castle has changed with the times. In the hall where portraits of the eldest sons used to hang, are paintings by Damien Hirst and other contemporary artists. Marble busts are draped in Liverpool football club scarves. Charlie says he was never interested in family history. For years, his privilege left him feeling uneasy in himself.
7: I hate the idea that all that I've achieved in life is is bought with that money that kind of really causes me anxiety. It's, it's patently not, but I'm, I'm aware of that sort of narrative, and I, and I want to prove to people that I'm not that person. I mean, my mantra is to stay the same, everything has to change. I don't want to stay at the top of the pile, but I want my estate to be relevant. And I think that part of that change is addressing this ghastly past, and I think it has many tentacles.
6: This ghastly past, his family's involvement in slavery, is one that Charlie says he was unaware of until the Black Lives Matter protests in America in
2: 2020. Justice, no peace. I can't breathe! I can't
6: breathe! I can't the movement prompted society to reckon with its treatment of Black people, both in the present and in the past. In Bristol, England, the statue of a former slave owner named Edward Colston was torn down by a crowd. Activists then turned their attention to other historical figures connected to the slave trade. They quickly began agitating to tear down statues of William Gladstone because of his father. Charlie says that was the first time that he learned that John Gladstone was a slave owner. But I didn't
7: know anything about this, and that's a combination of ignorance of never having been particularly interested in my family history. And I think the fact that what knowledge there was of it was very much brushed under the carpet by my family.
6: A case in point, Charlie once asked his father why Gladstone Small, a former England cricketer who was born in Barbados, shared their name.
7: And he said something along the lines of the fact that it was because William Gladstone was hugely admired in the Caribbean, and that his name was some sort of celebration of it. When in fact, of course, the chances are that he was actually a descendant of someone held in slavery by John Gladstone. And I mean, I suspect that my father's lie was simply a completely deliberate lie that was just designed to shut down the question.
6: When Charlie learned that John Gladstone had been a slaver, he was shocked, but he didn't immediately act.
7: I did think, God, you know, this is awful. I'll keep my head down and it'll probably go away.
6: Activists never did tear down William Gladstone's statue, but Charlie starts digging into research conducted by University College London, which studies the legacy of slavery in Britain the family starts funding the university. A few years go by. Then, just a few months ago, Charlie is contacted by a woman called Laura Trevelyan. Like Charlie, her ancestors owned slaves, 1,000 on the island of Grenada. And in March, she quit her job as a BBC correspondent to become a reparations campaigner. She, along with other descendants of slaveholders, launched a group called the Heirs of Slavery, which is campaigning for other British descendants of slave masters to come forward. Laura asked Charlie to join, and he said yes.
7: I think it's really important that we do not hide under the carpet. I think we have to be brave, and I think we have to lance this unpleasant boil within the family, and we have an opportunity through that to show other people that it can be done.
6: Being brave, lancing the boil, means for Charlie... Gathering up his family and getting on a plane to Guyana to make an apology to the nation.
7: I am not guilty, but I do feel some guilt. Will going there make me feel less guilt? Probably not. I think that there is clearly a vested interest in this. But what else are we meant to do? You know, do we just bury our head in the sand? Or can we actually, as a family, get into lockstep with some? people who are descendants of enslaved people, and try and build a future that has turned this awful history into something relatively positive, and to move forwards.
6: I need to take a step back here, because there's something that I've been grappling with whether to bring up in this podcast. Charlie's story isn't my story, but it is something that I can personally relate to. I'm also descended from slave owners. My family had a plantation in what is now Virginia wine country, just a few hours' drive from Washington, D.C. By the early 1800s, my ancestors enslaved more than 100 people. We've always known that our family had a plantation. It's never been a secret, exactly. But we've also never really talked about it, and certainly haven't acted on it. So on the one hand, I'm impressed by the Gladstone's courage. They're not just owning that past, they're going to face it head on. And it makes me wonder whether I should be doing the same thing. But I'm also not entirely sure where it gets us. I mean, what are you supposed to do with that information? Are you responsible for the sins of your forefathers? Can you inherit guilt? At what point do you consign this history to the past and move on? These are tough questions that people are only beginning to deal with. And so as the Gladstones make the trip to Guyana to find out what it means to confront the past, I am more than just a passive observer on this journey. I am mulling many of the same questions myself. It's hot, really hot. It's my first day in Guyana. I'm outside the hotel where the Gladstones are staying, waiting to meet up with a man called Eric Phillips. Eric's the chair of the country's reparations committee, and the person who choreographed the whole trip. As I wait and try to ignore the sweat starting to trickle down my leg, I watch hummingbirds flitting around the eaves of the hotel, Eric is the person who invited the Gladstones to come to Guyana in the first place. And he tells me he's impressed that they've come.
5: A lot of it is abstract. If my great-great-grandfather had hurt someone a long time ago, I don't think I can relate to that in the same way as if I were actually involved. So the Gladstones are generations away from what their ancestors did, and yet they've made the decision to apologize And not only to apologize, but to go to a place like Guyana to apologize. This is an extraordinary, difficult environment for them.
6: Eric is a worldly guy. He has lived in the Caribbean, Africa, and Europe, or as he puts it, he has lived the triangle, the transatlantic slave trade. He thinks it was his destiny to become a reparations activist. And he definitely seems to have the right qualifications. He's full of energy. During our trip, he's frequently on the phone answering calls with a hello, Mr. Prime Minister, and generally sorting problems before they can begin.
5: I can't imagine, if I were them, how I would have approached it and reached the point where I want to apologize. This is an extraordinary emotional process, not only for them, but for people in the Caribbean who are expecting reparations and who are suffering.
6: Over the next four days, Phillips has designed what I can only describe as an apology tour. The family will deliver a formal public apology to the nation. They'll meet the prime minister.
4: I thank you for taking this bold step of coming to Attend
6: Attended ancestral forgiveness ceremony. (laughs)
4: Lunch
6: with Afro-Guyanese elders. That's just a few of the events in their itinerary. Phillips hopes the trip will accomplish a few things. That it will set Afro-Guyanese on the long road to healing, that it will lend momentum to the Caribbean reparations movement, and that it will deepen the Gladstones' understanding of slavery's harms. Not just past harms, but present ones too. And he wants to do all of this in a way that makes the Gladstones feel welcome. It's a tall order. As the Gladstones gather for breakfast on their first morning in Guyana, the memory of the airport protest is fresh in Charlie's mind.
7: I know that there are people who really disagree with me doing this. I know as a, that people will not think we're doing enough or we're doing too much. But I think that the majority of the sentient thinking middle ground will think, I think this is the right thing to do.
6: Day one of the family's journey to absolution starts with the apology. We are in an auditorium at the University of Guyana. Cameramen have set up their equipment. The apology will be broadcast to the nation and the world. We're about half an hour before the start and probably waiting on a few more people. Seated behind us, it looks like there's some Rastafarians with their their dreads contained in their really, really colourful hats. As the event begins, Charlie is invited to the podium. He looks calm, and in an even voice begins to read from a statement.
7: To the people of Guyana, we, the undersigned, descendants of Sir John Gladstone, first baronet of Farsk and Balfour, wish to offer our sincerest apologies his actions in holding your ancestors in slavery in Vemerara now Guyana.
6: He rarely looks up from his sheet of paper.
7: It is with deep shame and regret that we acknowledge our ancestors' involvement in this crime, and with heartfelt sincerity that we apologize to the descendants of the enslaved in Guyana.
6: Charlie calls on other descendants to come forward.
7: And we urge the British government to enter into meaningful discussions so that both parties can move towards a better future together.
6: And he announces that the Gladstone family will fund a new department at this very university, as well as other community-based projects.
7: Our aim is to create meaningful and long-term relationships between our family and the people of Guyana.
6: With that, he concludes his remarks.
7: Yours most sincerely, Charles Gladstone, Caroline Gladstone, Robert Gladstone, Felix Gladstone, Santi Gladstone and William Merrison.
6: There are shouts in the back of the theater. About 15 protesters are holding up signs with the same slogans the family saw at the airport. The host of the event quickly takes the podium.
3: We hear you, and your protest is recorded.
6: Charlie doesn't respond. His face is carefully arranged in a neutral expression. His wife Caroline looks like she's on the verge of tears. Charlie returns to his chair, his face still expressionless, and as he picks up a bottle of water, I notice his hand trembles slightly. After the apology, I look for the protesters who have left the building. It's the same protesters that we saw earlier in the back of the theater. They've congregated outside and they're holding up their posters saying, How dare you offer pittances? 2,500 slaves equals 2,500 million. Do the human thing, Gladstone family. And the Gladstones are murderers. A man stands at the center of the group. He has dreads and wears a T-shirt with a quote by Haile Selassie, the former Ethiopian emperor.
4: We're here because there's a history of apologies that are merely perfunctory actions and nothing else beneficial ever comes out of it. The atrocities of slavery were... Obvious, they were substantial. They even reached into future generation. And so the Gladstones represent slave masters and slave traders. And it's, it's nothing like personal against the Gladstone family. But we just think that all holders and traders of slaves were thieves and murderers. Just so, the recompense and the redress must be obvious, must be substantial, and must be far-reaching that can reach into generations.
0: Seven in 10 full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact Supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. Here's the truth about AI. AI is only as powerful
6: as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees. Supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit serviceNow.com/slash AI for people. To understand what exactly the Gladstones are apologizing for, you have to understand the impact their ancestor, John Gladstone, had on this country. As an absentee plantation owner, he never stepped foot in Guyana. Yet he played a singular role in the country's history, and his actions had consequences that reverberate today. Guyana is in South America, but is considered part of the Caribbean. That's because of geography, it's on the continent's northern edge, and history. Like so many Caribbean countries, it was colonized by the British, who trafficked millions of African slaves to the region and would supplant Portugal as the world's biggest slave trading country by the 1650s. By the end of the 18th century, British planters were piling into Demerara, eager to taste the rewards of the sugar trade. Sugar was so profitable that the price of slaves was higher in Demerara than in any other British colony. By that point, it was an essential cog in the British slave economy. And the British slave economy was an essential cog in the British economy overall. John Gladstone entered the picture in 1803 when he first began snapping up plantations in Demerara. He would go on to become one of the largest slaveholders in the British Caribbean. And 20 years after Gladstone became a player in Demerara, something happened on one of his plantations that would change the course of the country's history.
1: In August of 1823, there was this rebellion that started on Plantation Success, which was one of the plantations owned by the Gladstones.
6: This is Dr. Estherine Adams, an academic at the University of Guyana who specializes in her country's history. We're back in the Gladstones Hotel, an old colonial building which used to be the clubhouse of a sugar company. There is sugar cane planted all around us, a stark reminder of why slaves were brought to this country over 200 years ago. As we sit in the grounds of the hotel, Dr. Adams tells me about the Demerara uprising of 1823, when nearly 12,000 slaves rose up against their masters. That's about one in six at the time.
1: Now, this rebellion, it was led by Jack Gladstone and Kwamina, and it, it is considered one of the largest rebellions in the history of not only Guyana, but the history of the Caribbean.:
6: Kwamina Gladstone and Jack Gladstone were father and son. They shared a name with John Gladstone, but they weren't his relatives. They were his slaves.
1: As Guyanese, when we look at Jack and we look at Kuamina, you can understand why we would sort of venerate them because of this role that they played in that rebellion and, of course, what happened to them as a result of it.
6: The rebellion was put down within days. Hundreds of slaves were massacred and many were tortured and decapitated. Kwamina himself was shot and his body chained up between two trees outside of plantation success. His corpse was left to rot as a warning to others. Jack was exiled and never heard from again. The Demerara Rebellion would help persuade the British to abolish slavery a decade later. The British public was shocked to hear of the terrible treatment of slaves, and many turned against slaveholders when they learned of the brutal suppression of the rebellion. But in order to win support amongst the colonists for abolition, the British government promised reparations, not to former slaves, but to their owners. In total, in 1835, the British government paid over 40,000 people £20 million, which was 40% of that year's budget. It financed this enormous payment with a loan that wouldn't be fully repaid for 180 years. John Gladstone, who owned 2,500 slaves in Guyana and Jamaica, received the largest payout of any slaveholder, 110,000 pounds. That's 124 million in today's money, roughly 150 million U.S. dollars. Gladstone then used that money to replace his former slaves with Indians, whose passage to Guyana he paid for. With that fell stroke, he introduced something known as indentured labor to the colony. Indentured labor is where a person works for free, in return for travel expenses and room and board, usually to flee poverty back home. Without them, the British planters wouldn't have been able to afford to keep their plantations going after slavery was abolished. The Gladstones
1: emerge as very prominent in this because the first group of indentured immigrants that entered into, well, the East Indian immigrants that entered into Guyana came under a scheme that was called the Gladstone Experiment.
6: This kick-started a process that would dramatically reshape Guyana's ethnic makeup and politics. Today, two in five Guyanese are of Indian origin. We're on our way behind a police outrider to the next stop in the apology tour.
7: Riding with no hands? With no hands and what? Your arms yeah, he was riding with no hands a lot of the time yesterday. Just signaling. Left, right.
6: I'm impressed by Charlie's composure. It's been a long day already, and we're only halfway through. One
7: of the best bits of reversing I've ever seen in all my yeah. life. <laughs> Charlie's
6: hot. His white linen shirt is drenched with sweat, and says he's tired. And yet somehow, under the glare of this national spotlight, he's also remarkably poised. But then again, I think maybe he's too composed. To me, his apology felt a little stiff and a little anticlimactic. I guess I was hoping for more emotion. But how are you supposed to sound when apologizing for the crime of someone you never knew? A crime committed 200 years ago. Charlie hasn't done anything wrong. And I can't help feeling that I haven't either. Can you feel real remorse for a crime that you haven't committed? These are questions I keep coming back to while reporting this story. The problem is the subject just feels so abstract. On day two, we head to a village just a few miles along the coast from Georgetown. After navigating ramshackle roads shaded by palm trees, we enter a church and are guided to tables set out for lunch. We've come to the village of Buxton, named after an English abolitionist. It was one of the very first villages to be bought by the newly freed Afro-Guyanese after emancipation.
5: Good afternoon, elders. Thank you for having us here. The Buxton family, the Gladstones, good afternoon. Buxton is a special place in
6: Guyana. The Gladstones are guests of honor. They sit at a plastic table with their host, Eric Phillips, and some village elders, members of the Guyana Reparations Committee, and a former prime minister. Charlie is wearing a light-colored suit, as he has every day of this trip. The jacket very quickly comes off. His attempt to cope with um, yeah, the heat. There are speeches, history. a spoken word performance, folk songs. There are about 60 people here and everyone sings along. When lunch is late, the MC urges everyone to get up and dance, and I mean everyone. The Brits are not spared, and neither am I. We're all <laughs> We've all been dragged up to the front of the church. We're all sweating profusely. <laughs> it strikes me that the reason for our visit to Buxton is to introduce the Gladstones to ordinary Afro Guyanese, to show them how they live and what they think. When lunch arrives, I sit with two local ladies. They tell me that discrimination persists, and so does a sense of loss, even after hundreds of years.
8: We are being marginalized, we are being victimized, we are being discriminated against as a race. We are still under slavery, although we are celebrating. We are not allowed to do as you like, We are not allowed to speak as you like. Um, jobs have been taken away from us. I think of Bob Marley's song, where he sang, You're Still in a Mental Slavery. As a result of that, too many of us might settle for less than we are, might think of ourselves less than we are.
6: And the things that you would accept about yourself from other people, you should not really accept. Guyana's politics are complicated. When indentured labourers from India began arriving in great numbers, the British set them against the Africans. At emancipation, the British gave slaves nothing but their freedom. And yet they gave Indians land and villages. Racial tension between those groups, Guyana's two biggest ethnicities, continues to simmer today and periodically spills over into violence. Politicians stoke these tensions because it's an easy way of getting votes. It doesn't help that Indo-Guyanese are wealthier than Afro-Guyanese and overrepresented among the country's richest, while Afro-Guyanese people are more likely to be in the least wealthy half of the population. But this wealth is relative. By the end of the British colonial era in the Caribbean, in the 1950s and 1960s, the people of the Caribbean were far poorer, sicker, and less well-educated than the British. That remains true today, more than half a century later. This is the legacy of John Gladstone and the British Empire. A number of protesters follow us from event to event. And what becomes clear as we travel with the Gladstones is that for many people, an apology simply isn't enough. And how could it be?
1: I don't care. We need to know about our ancestors. What is the fucking
3: My sisters and brothers, let's retreat back inside. our shame.
4: I would ask the Gladstone today, They have greater states, I would ask of you today, if it's possible that the people of Guyana as a slave for you for so many years if you would give them one of your estates.
6: Charlie doesn't respond to this man. There is that neutral look again. But he tells me in the car later that proposals like, give us all your money, are a non-starter.
7: That's, that's something that's, that comes out every, almost every few minutes, doesn't it, in this debate? Why don't you give everything? I mean, it's, I, don't, I don't make any more of it there than any other time. We're not going to do that.
6: But it does raise an interesting question. Is it even possible to calculate the debt of slavery? Where do you begin? There are some numbers to work with. On the eve of emancipation in 1833, John Gladstone held over half his wealth directly in slave property. He probably derived even more of his wealth from previous investments in slavery. As much as a further 30%, according to Nicholas Draper of University College London. Shortly before he died, he gave over £320,000 to his children. Today, that would be worth about £31 million. But this is where it gets tricky. John Gladstone had six children. William Gladstone had eight. Some of the money that William's children inherited came from their wealthy mother. Each generation spent some of that inheritance or made money of their own. Unless your family has kept impeccable financial records over hundreds of years, it's difficult to trace the flow of one inheritance through five generations.
7: I suspect that any money that there was has been fairly um, dissipated, and I certainly didn't inherit very much money. I inherited a bit from my parents when they died.
6: He did inherit an estate bought by John Gladstone, though he's at pains to point out it was in terrible condition when he got it. But still, He grew up with that privilege, and part of that may be linked with John Gladstone.
7: I do believe that a huge amount of my general privilege in life, which is to have had a fantastic education and to live in amazing places, was to some extent a function of that.
6: My Virginia slave-owning ancestors also played a role in the politics of my country. One was a senator and later a cabinet secretary. Another was a judge in the Supreme Court. I haven't inherited money from these people, but my upbringing was comfortably middle class. Is it possible that stems in part from my Virginia family? All of which provokes yet more questions. How do you value something as intangible as privilege? How do you then determine what portion of that privilege you owe, in Charlie's case, to your great-great-great-grandfather? Is that even possible? It all comes back to this question. Should descendants like Charlie and like me have to pay reparations? And if so, how much?
3: First of all, let me say that I applaud the heirs and heiresses of enslavers who have come forward. It cannot be easy to Know that your ancestors were involved in what has been called a crime against humanity. And it took bravery to come forward. I want to put that out there first of all. My name is Vereen Shepherd. I'm a social historian and I'm also chair of the UN treaty body, which is called the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination.
6: I'm talking to Vereen Shepherd via video call from Kingston, Jamaica. She's wearing a gold head wrap and large gold earrings. And when asked by my producer, she dutifully switches off her aircon and closes the window, even though she tells me it's sweltering outside. Professor Shepard has thought a lot about how much is owed to the descendants of slaves. She's a Jamaican historian. It sits on a reparations commission organized by CARICOM, a club of 15 countries in the Caribbean.
3: I believe that there is a moral obligation to apologize on behalf of the ancestors who are not around now. So that we in the Caribbean as descendants can then begin a conversation about repair. Because reparation is about repairing the harm.
6: She is herself descended from slaves.
3: I don't think they have an obligation to pay off the reparation bill that we have in front of us. but that moral obligation can come with some offer of help to repair the harm created by their ancestors. They can make a gesture to visit those places, to see the conditions of the people today, and to see if they can invest in education, in health, in the areas of underdevelopment that we're talking about.
6: And to be fair to the Gladstones, that is exactly what they're doing. The extended family had already given about £60,000 to researchers at University College London. They've promised an additional £100,000 to scholars at the University of Guyana studying slavery and indentureship. But for the reparations campaigners that I talk to, this is nice, it's okay. But the most important thing they think the Gladstones can do is lobby the British government. Guyana wants an apology and it wants compensation.
3: I am putting an obligation on them to join the advocates right around the world, join the reparation movement and call their state responsible, call out their states to settle the bill that CARICOM and Africa will demand.
6: So how do you calculate a nation's debt? Well, a recent study commissioned by CARICOM has worked out what Britain may be on the hook for. Lawyers, historians, and economists at an American consultancy called the Brattle Group calculated the lost earnings of enslaved people and tried to quantify the toll of personal injury, mental pain, and discrimination after abolition. They determined that Britain owes 13 countries that comprise some of its former colonies in the Americas, nearly 24 trillion U.S. dollars, including half a trillion to Guyana. That's more than nine times Britain's GDP last year, which may explain why, in April, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said this in Parliament.
4: Trying to unpick our history is not the right way forward, and it's not something that we will focus our energies on.
6: Members of the royal family like Prince William and King Charles have expressed regret.
4: The appalling atrocity of slavery forever stains our history. I cannot describe the depths of my personal sorrow at the suffering of so many.
6: But you see, there's a subtle difference between personal sorrow and a full apology. One is nice to have, the other admits responsibility for a crime against humanity. The practical challenges of figuring out who owes what and to whom are enormous. But other countries are starting to grapple with the issue. Last year, the Dutch government apologized and promised to spend 200 million euros on educational initiatives related to slavery. Portugal's president recently said that his country should also apologize. President Joe Biden has said he supports studying reparations. It's clear that this conversation is only just beginning. Throughout this journey, I've been wondering about the responsibilities of people like the Gladstones and like me. I still think that descendants shouldn't feel guilty. We haven't done anything wrong. And yet I can't help feeling shame. I come from people who committed crimes against humanity— crimes that continue to reverberate through the generations. So what do you do? I don't think descendants can be expected to pay financial reparations. Call that self-serving if you like, but here's why. It's easy to scapegoat a wealthy family with a recognisable name like the Gladstones. But as academics start poking under the bonnet, they're discovering that far more people in the UK have links to slavery than you might think. People who are well-off, like me, but also people who aren't so lucky. In other words, the full spectrum of society. Then you have to consider that it's very hard to determine exactly who owes what and to whom, and many descendants would only be able to afford token sums. All of which means we have to reframe the question. It's less about what should they, the landed elite, pay, more what are we, the people, going to pay. And how do you calculate that? Slavery was sanctioned by governments, and only governments have the ability to make a meaningful difference to the lives of slaves' descendants. So I think it's the responsibility of states, not individuals, to foot the bill. Of course, some descendants, like the Gladstons, want to pay reparations, and that should be welcomed. But there are other ways of paying off the debt. They can raise awareness about slavery and its ongoing consequences. They can lobby their governments to help countries still struggling to emerge from slavery's long shadow. And perhaps most importantly, they can apologize. At the end of the day, reparations are about patching up the harms of the past. Slave owners never acknowledge their crimes. Descendants have it in their power to say, this is what my family did, and we are sorry. As I say these words aloud, of course I think about my own family history. There's that sense of shame that breaks out on my skin, like a rash. But the Gladstone's trip has shown me that this legacy of guilt doesn't have to be the end of the story. Their journey showed me that there was another way of approaching this subject. Not from a defensive crouch, stuck in fear's corner, but from a more hopeful place. Because their apology clearly meant a lot to many people. Contained in those two simple words, I'm sorry, is the seed of a better future. And so, am I ready to confront my family history? I think the answer to that is yes. It's not much, but it's a start. It's the fourth and last day of an incredibly packed itinerary. The trip's drawing to a close, the family is exhausted, and they seem like they're ready to go home. Um, very small question. <laughs> Sorry. What's Sorry. your favorite color? <laughs> <laughs> My favorite color is.
7: Actually, it varies. But just a
6: few hours before the Gladstones are due to leave, Eric Phillips, the family's host, the man who organized this whole trip, springs a final surprise.
5: Morning. Good morning. Good morning. This is um, Mr. Charles Gladstone. Um, Charles, this is Oswald. Oswald, Wyoming. Very nice. Very nice yes, to meet you. Good.
6: The Gladstones walk into a conference room with Eric. At a table in the center sit a brother and sister, Oswald and Roxanne, Kwamana, and their spouses. They're the descendants of the man whose life ended brutally, chained up between two trees outside plantation success, all because he dreamed of freedom.
8: I would like to have a word in prayer Certainly. that God direct us as we speak. Mm-hmm. That we will say the right things, mm-hmm. and that whatever we say would be in order. And the
6: Gladstones look uncertain. In what do you say in a situation like this?
5: Overall, I, uh, the intention of meeting you was was a difficult decision. My sister here, she's strong in her voice, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so. And I, I said,
8: we must meet. There's yeah, no, yeah. Because if <laughs> we don't meet, it means that we're running away. Yes. It's yes. like putting your head yes. on. Yes. Burying your head in head the sand. In the sand.
6: So. Roxanne's husband asks her how she feels about Charlie's apology. Um,
8: I knew it was sincere. I look at him, and he sits. And you can see all of that is coming through him coming through his being, I've come to the place in life where I've learned to forgive, not because I'm a pastor, but because I realize it gives you freedom. Knowing that I came down from a generation of slaves and I am an offspring of what happened way back there. This is something that rarely happens in a lifetime. And so when someone steps forth, you have to reach out and accept.
6: She looks at Charlie, who nods deeply.
8: And therefore, I'm pleased that we were able to do this today to come to the place, uh, the table, to break bread and yet ask for forgiveness and be able to
5: forgive. On behalf of the family, the family, we do accept mm-hmm. your apology. Yes. Yes. You. Yeah.
6: And with that, it's over. The families part ways and the Gladstones head home. They came to Guyana in an act of contrition and were forgiven. That puts the family one step closer to absolution.
2: This episode was reported by Charlie McCann and produced by Rory Galloway. The sound design was by Nicholas Rolfast. The executive producer of The Weekend Intelligence is Gemma Newby. The editor for 1843 is Jonathan Beckman. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Weekend Intelligence. We hope you enjoyed it. Tell us what you think at podcasts at And please, come back for more. Jason and I will be here every Saturday with a brand new story.